0: Your average craft beer drinkers have bought into the whole IBU currency without knowing its worth. In many ways, as beer makers, we're doing exactly the same. We all know how to measure IBUs by lab or formula, but we don't think about the why behind the bitter. Why should something that your body screams out danger you actually crave? Understanding the human side of bitter will help you understand your customers better, which leads to Better Bitter Sales. Hi, this is Velo Mitrovich, and you're listening to Review Media's The Brewer's Journal Podcast. If you haven't guessed already, in this episode we'll be talking about bitterness, but going at it from what I hope you'll find to be a different angle. This episode is slightly longer than normal, so pop one open now, have another cold one in reserve, and enjoy the show. High IBU beers are back. No, they're not. Yes, they are. Yes, no, yes, no. <sighs> it's all not to drive you crazy. Through our own fault of not educating customers, most of the time they equate IBU solely with hot flavor. No wonder they're confused and driving us a bit insane in our tap rooms. This whole bitterness argument has been going on for each and every year since the 1990s when craft brewing crawled out from the hobbyist basements and into a proper commercial kettle. The answers that were lacking then are still lacking today. Since then, like Chili Heads making hotter and hotter hot sauce, some brewers seem to think that the more bitter hot taste that you could cram in that bottle or can, the better. But if you're trying to sell beer instead of creating headlines, that's such a good move. There is a reason why some of us like bitter and a reason why some of us hate it. There's a reason why most times you're doing your customers no favors by listing IBUs. And there's a reason, for that matter, why the whole IBU rating system might have had its day. But let's forget bitterness for a second and talk about chilies. Back in 1912, Wilbur Schofield was a pharmacologist who was working for America's leading pharmaceutical company at the time, Park Davis. Schofield had a problem. He was trying to improve one of the company's products, a cream called Heat, spelled H-E-E-T, which was used to treat sprained or sore muscles and it's still around today. At that time the active ingredient in Heat was capsicum, the key chemical that makes chili peppers hot. Park Davis, however, didn't always use the same type of peppers to extract the capsicum and in different chilies the Heat varied. So if you're trying to make a consistent product, you need some sort of way of measuring this. It's not enough to bite into a chili, count the drops of sweat on your forehead, and say, hey, this variety is hotter than that one. According to John McQuaid in his book Tasty, Schofield's method was to dry out peppers and then dissolve a specific weight of dried peppers in oil in order to extract the heat compounds. The extract was then diluted in sugar water and given to a panel of five lucky tasters. The amount of sugar needed to make the heat undetectable to majority of the tasters determine the Schofield rating of the pepper. Well, for Park Davis, the whole capsicum thing didn't work out. It now uses an extract derived from wintergreen. Schofield's scale has stayed with us, although now the measuring process is considerably more technical than finding five mates to like chilies. Why do we like the sensation of our mouth on fire in the first place? The burning sensation capsicum induces in the mouth leads the body to produce endorphins as a countermeasure. With the Schofield scale, you know exactly how much heat you're subjecting yourself to, and this has led to pepperheads going after ever hotter sensations. Hearing that cash register ring, plant breeders and soft makers are happy to oblige them. And they've come up with hotter and hotter chilies. How hot? Your bog standard jalapeno, which pretty much any of us can eat without our faces turning too red, is anywhere from 2,500 to 8,000 Scoville Heat Units, SHU. The Carolina Reaper Chili, developed by Ed Curry's Pucker Butt Pepper Company, boasts 2.2 million SHU, making it around 200 times hotter than a jalapeno. But that's jump change. By cooking down and concentrating in chili's capsicum content and using such chili blasters as the Reaper, the Trinidad Moruga Scorpion, or the Ghost Pepper, sauce makers have come out with blends that have anywhere from 6 million to 9 million SHUs. While sauces such as Black Mamba, Mad Dog, or Blistered Bunghole all have truly impressive SHU units. Does anyone actually use them on their vindalus, or do they sit on a collector's shelf in the original unopened wrappers next to the asbestos gloves? Ashwin Rodriguez, writing for M.E.L. said, ass destroying hot sauces, hell and death are also popular themes. Mostly tastes like shit and are usually designed solely with heat in mind. Never flavor, and consuming them as a party trick where the trick is trying not to die. The reality is the top five sellers by volume in the States range from a brother tame 1,000 to 5,000 SHUs. If you want to get some publicity, you go hotter than high. If you want to make money, yeah, you go sensible. At this point, the thought might be occurring to you that there are similarities between SHU and International Bitterness Units, IBU, especially how we perceive and use the scale. Like the problem of trying to produce a consistent product that uses capsicum, beer makers needed a way of producing a consistent tasting beer and in the 1950s, scientists started working on a way of measuring the amount of bitterness that was in beer. In 1955, two researchers extracted the bitter substance from beer by using chloroform and then weighing the dried extract. This was about as easy, fun, and fast as it sounds. And this process was further complicated by the need to measure unhopped wort which was needed to provide a base number to all this. I'm not even going to try to go into the chemistry of these methods except to say the process was refined by taking isooctane extracts of the acidified beer and diluting them with methyl. This produced an alkaline that could be measured by ultraviolet light and those results were agreed upon by a tasting panel. Faster approaches were developed, which did away with the need to make the extract alkaline, and instead relied on higher ultraviolet wavelengths to measure bitterness. All was well then? Far from it. Not only were there different methods being used to determine bitterness, it also varied on which side of the pond you were on. Finally, in 1965, there was a meeting of minds between the Analyst Committee of the European Brewery Convention and the Naisa Humilone Subcommittee of the American Society of Brewing Chemists. A standard test method was agreed upon along with the bitterness scale. But, ah, there's always a but. The Europeans wanted to call the units of bitterness International Bitterness Units. Hmm, sounds good to me. But the Americans were holding fast to the I saw Humane Loan Bitterness Unit. Some wise soul noticed that regardless of the initials being used, hey, they were the same, so IBU became the agreed-upon name. Like with SHU's, brewers publicly like to push the IBU envelope in both directions. In one corner, wearing blue trunks and hailing from Virginia's The Vale Brewing Company is, I don't want to BU, which claims to have zero IBU. Despite its intense soft flavor, in the opposite corner, wearing red trunks and hailing from Manchester, is Carbon Smith, which I'll have to rename for this broadcast, and call it Fudge Up Your Stuff IPA, at a claim 2600 IPU. But with Carbon Smith out of business since 2017, it's difficult to find out how brewers achieved this alleged figure. Other notables at the high end include Canada's Flying Monkeys, which came out in 2011 with a 2,500 IBU Alpha Fornication. They had so much faith that this would be a big hit that they only made one keg and six bottles. Dogfish Head came out with Load, the only independently tested high IBU beer, which was 658 IBU and only available for one night. Most beers fall between one to 100, with 20 to 45 the most common range for those with a hop presence. The big commercial lagers, such as Budweiser, Miller's, are around 10 to 15 IBU. To interject this now, what throws off the average Joe and Jill beer lover is when they're in your tap room. If they blindly follow IBUs, they'll see your Russian Imperial Stout listed at 90 IBU expect it to be more bitter and bitter or more hoppier than hop. Then in total confusion, their heads will pop off like your old rock'em sock'em robot toy when they realize there's no bitter or hop taste in it. You could tell them the stout is like lemonade, the sour bitter it is, the more sugar grain you add. Or you could spend an hour discussing grain, ABV, sweetness, hops, bitterness, and IBUs, Or you could just let them wallow in their ignorance and tend to other customers. Trying to get a better understanding of bitterness, I turned to Ray Daniels, founder and director of Cicerone Certification Program. He told me that IBUs by themselves don't mean much. Ray says, I can give you a beer with 29 IBUs that you'll perceive as undrinkably bitter, and another with the exact same level of IBUs that you'll tell me is cloyingly sweet. With the perceived bitterness measure, we want to move past just looking at IBU numbers and get into something more meaningful when you actually taste the beer. Various elements in a beer can be used to influence the perception of bitterness, including original gravity, adjunct usage, attenuation, carbonation level, and yes, actual IBU level. And in most cases, perceived bitterness is pretty consistent across examples of a particular beer style even while the IBUs themselves might vary by 30 or 40%, says Ray. That is why, Ray told me, that when evaluating beers for most purposes, they wouldn't necessarily want to look at the quantitative values for a beer before tasting it, but instead of own they rely on perception to decide the balance of the beer. But back in the world of totally untrained folks, the problem is when drinkers discovered the taste of hops and IPAs, they started seeing IBUs not as a measurement of bitterness, but as a way of breweries to express how many hops they crammed into a bottle. If more hops please their taste buds, then a higher IBU must mean a better beer. Or if they hate hops, then a higher IBU must be avoided at all costs. To them, IBUs equate to hop flavor and aroma, not at all to bitterness. Cormac Wall, the beer buyer at online bottle shop Honest Brew, says, "With the age of New England IPA styles upon us, it's a topic that sometimes enters the conversation between Honest Brew buyers, particularly when it comes to perceived reduction in IBUs, even in seemingly West Coast styles. I think for customers, the talk of IBU is something that was prominent in the early years of this decade." when several beers were reported to wield hundreds of IBUs and it was a selling point for them. Occasionally, we'll still see a beer from a gristled old West Coast brewer and they'll proudly proclaim 200 IBU on the side of the can. But on the whole, it seems to pass from general consciousness among consumers as most brewers avoid high bitterness levels, so feel no need to mention IBUs anymore. Belgian Brewery, Brassier des Sins prides itself on the bitterness of its beers, which it describes as being the key characteristic of its beers. But Jovan de Viettes of Brazier says that he's not tempted in the least the list I've used. I pride myself on the balance in my beers, not on their bitterness. They are not extremely bitter and don't have an extremely bitterness perception. I would certainly not Put indications such as IBUs on a label as beer making is not a penis contest. I want the people to taste with their nose and taste buds and not with numbers. On top of that, IBUs don't say anything about perceived bitterness. He says for our beers, it's their balance between hoppiness, bitterness, maltiness, and fermentation flavors. And the reason for that is that's what I like. I pride myself on being a selfish brewer. Breweries measure their IBU by using their own lab or sending samples off to commercial labs using a complicated mass formula or using the same formula as part of a free software. There are several found on the net or by just taking a sip. While the cost of test equipment has dropped over the last few years, there are still reoccurring costs in using these machines. If you're thinking about buying one, be sure to investigate what your total year-on cost will be. For smaller craft breweries, this could mean sending a sample off to a lab will be your cheaper option. However, you're then looking at up to 48 hours for results as opposed to results in just 10 to 30 minutes. The traditional method for measuring bitterness often requires a laboratory with a laboratory technician, UV, VIS, spectrophotometer, water bath, glassware, solvents, etc., and can take anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. This has changed, though, with the introduction of a small, easy-to-use, portable lab kit. And the best-selling brewery kit right now in the UK is CDR's Beer Lab, So locally through QCL Scientific. I'm speaking to James Mallett of QCL. James, tell me your background in beer.
1: Hello. So, yeah. So, I um, originally did a BSc in microbiology. And then I joined a company called AB Vickers, part of the Lallaman Group in Burton-on-Trent. I was their microbiologist, um, and that sparked my love of beer and the brewing industry. So from there, I went back and did a PhD at Nottingham University at their brewing school. And then I worked as a assistant brewer at Blue Monkey Brewing in Nottingham for eight months before joining uh, QCL in my current role.
0: So how many beer labs are there in use in the UK?
1: Uh, we have about 60 beer labs out in operation across the UK. Um, ranging from small production facilities at three barrel size up to some of the large multinational breweries. Uh, we have four with one of the company in particular.
0: Uh, I've been to breweries that have bought kits for one thing or the other, and going by the inches of dust that uh, that cover them, you know, they've been in their box forever. Why would Beer Lab be any different?
1: Well, it's, it's funny you should say that. Um, one of my first visits when I first joined the company was to reconnect with some of our customers and one of them had a, a beer lab that they bought three years ago and it had been left in the, its box. And I thought this was a, a large investment for a small brewery. Um, and I wondered why they weren't using it. And a lot of the factors are time and staff. Um, but this, this shouldn't be an issue if you're able to build it into your processes as the tests are pretty quick. Um, it's all about how you build it into your routine. I mean, you, you have a degree
0: in, in brewing science. You've done microbiology and you know, you, got, you know chemistry. I don't know any of these things i still use a, a beer lab
1: yeah sure the beauty of the beer lab is that it's been uh, it's sound science packaged in a, a really easy to use kit um there are step-by-step instructions you don't need a specific scientific background we will come out and train you um when you first purchase the kit and we'll demonstrate it to you and we will come back and offer you refresher training um as you need it we we normally offer a couple of visits um and then, but we're always in contact on the phone or email as well. Um, if you need any further support,
0: when you go to a brewery, how many people do you normally train?
1: It tends to be between two and three brewers. Um, certain companies will have des- designated brewers that will do all their QC. Um, the rest, it will they'll try and spread it across the team so that if one person's doing transfers and all this sort of stuff, someone can jump on the beer lab and do the the routine testing.
0: You told me that there have uh, been three to five barrel breweries buying a beer lab. But it's probably around the 10 barrel point that it makes the most sense to own one. That said, the three barrels now doing 10 barrel plus production. So it seemed like having a very consistent quality beer was fundamental to their growth plans. Have you found this that the breweries that want consistency do something like Beer Lab?
1: Yeah, I think um, a massive factor going forward, um, especially with how uh, populous the market is having a consistent quality product is going to be vital. Um, consistency is quality and you can measure that really easily with the beer lab. So building in that sort of QC process is, is vital going forward.
0: I noticed that, you know, the whole IBU test is often, um, uh, they, they examine the hops at a very early stage in the beer production, but now people are adding hops during the entire production from start to end. Um, is this something I could use the beer lab to test?
1: Yeah, you can uh, test the um, beer uh, samples across the production process for your IBU level. Um, So it's easy to use at all points of the process.
0: And what are the costs? I mean, it sounds good, but (laughs) what are the costs?
1: So initially up front, the capital cost is um, around the £6,000 mark. Um, That equips you with everything you need to do the tests, including the beer lab, mini centrifuge, ultrasonic bath for preparation of samples, and all the pipettes. Um, and then there is an ongoing reagent cost. Uh, depending on how many tests you buy at a time, it ranges between five and six pounds a test for the IBUs. The next
0: step down in testing, which many small breweries use all the time or others use in brewing one-offs, is the mass formula method. While this is the cheapest way, it's not the most accurate as there could be other variables thrown in the mix. In looking at some breweries' IBU numbers, you have to suspect they're primarily using the dartboard method. And indeed, a few years back in the U.S. state of Oregon, a group of crap beer drinkers sued a number of Oregon brewers for not having accurate IBUs listed on their cans and bottles, according to Aubrey Lawrence reporting for Tap Trail. Essentially, this is a case of false advertising, said Tim Cruz, one of the plaintiffs filing the suit. These breweries are putting inaccurate IBU numbers on their beer labels and it's time they answered to those misleading claims. Still, it doesn't matter how accurate or inaccurate a system you're using to get your IBU numbers. Many see problems with the current IBU system, which hasn't moved on with the industry. Once upon a time, hops were only added to the boiling wort during the initial brewing process adding bitterness and producing a balance to the naturally sweet flavor of wort from the grains, doing the opposite of our lemonade analogy. However, modern styles of beer have seen an increase in hops added at different stages of the brewing process, including at the end of the wort boil, late hopping, and near the end of fermentation, dry hopping. Well, it has been thought that late hopping and dry hopping do not contribute to use in a beer. In a study conducted by London's Hackney brewery using a beer lab, it showed a considerable increase in IBU value from both light and dry hopping, suggesting that alternative compounds present in hops do in fact contribute to IBU value during the brewing process. Other breweries and research groups have done similar tests, have achieved the same results both here in the States, and their final thoughts have been the same. The traditional way of measuring bitterness is not relevant or accurate or even useful. The traditional test is why the Vale Brewing Company can produce a beer with an official IBU of zero, yet still have a bitter hoppy flavor that takes around 30 to 40 IBU. The Veil adds its hops later in the process after the IBU measurement is made. Going by official IBU standards, there are no IBUs in it. The reality however is far from this. For the big breweries who are making lagers that rely more on malt for flavor and aren't being created with hops, standard IBU works fine. However, for craft brewers the BUGU ratio might make more sense. The BUGU ratio is the IBUs divided by the gravity units. It represents the amount of bitterness balanced with the sweetness. Higher values mean more bitterness. The scale is roughly 0.25 to 0.35 for wheats, 0.4 to 0.8 for the majority of ales, and 1.0 and up for IPAs. Remember there is no law or requirement for using IBU. The scale was set up to help brewers produce a consistent product. You need to find out what works best for you. All this would be completely and totally irrelevant we didn't actually like bitter taste, which shouldn't be happening in the first place. Millions of years of evolution has equipped us to respond negatively to bitter more than any other taste. The reason is simple. The vast majority of all poisonous plants and animals taste bitter. Have a child bite into something bitter and they instinctively spit it out. And we're not alone with this. Jellyfish, fruit flies, and bacteria all not known for being the world's pickiest eaters, can sense bitter compounds. Humans have 24 bitter-tasting genes, far more than other life forms. About 15 years ago, it was discovered that besides the well-known bitter receptors on our tongues, we also have bitter receptors throughout our bodies in places such as the stomach, nose, lungs, and brain. Why these other bitter receptors? You tell me! Scientists haven't figured that one out yet either. But many believe that it acts as a shadow taste system. I asked Ray Daniels if the average beer drinker understands what, from a biological viewpoint, what bitterness is. Ha! Defined average. The average beer drinker in my world does, but I don't live in the real world, at least as far as beer goes. But I do think that most human beings recognize bitterness as a taste, It is, after all, one of the five basic tastes, so most people, they can call it out when they encounter it, certainly at high level, says Ray. Unlike jellyfish, humans are constantly twisting, challenging, and breaking evolutionary rules. And in every culture, there are bitter, bitter foods that are considered good. Bitter gourd in India, Icelandic fermented rotten Greenland shark, even uncured olives spring to mind along with dark chocolate, broccoli, coffee, and beer. It's always been thought that enjoying bitter flavors is an acquired taste, like with hot chilies, but new research is pointing towards an actual biological change in our saliva as to why we end up loving a very bitter hoppy IPA. Dr. Cordelia Running, a sensory scientist at Purdue University, wanted to know if there was a biological reason behind the change. She and her team at Produced Saliva Perception, Ingestion, and Tongues Laboratory, Spit Lab, suspected that repeated exposure to bitter foods might actually change something in a person's saliva. Besides keeping our mouths moist, saliva begins the digestion process of food, and the saliva makeup includes proteins that can affect how food and drink taste. Running decided to run with the idea. That exposure to bitter foods can actually change the proteins or the numbers of them. To test this theory, Runnings lab brought in 64 volunteers and gave them a six-week trial of alternating diets. One week the human guinea pigs would give up nearly all bitter food. The next week they would be given three daily glasses of chocolate almond milk due to the chocolate containing bitter compounds known as polyphenols. As suspected, the spit team was able to detect changes in the volunteer saliva after they consumed the chocolate almond milk. In particular, they saw an increase in a type of protein that naturally captures and binds to those bitter polyphenols, while at the same time test subjects began reporting the chocolate drink as tasting less bitter. The more bitter foods the subject ate, the more anti-bitter proteins they had in their saliva, and the more palatable the foods seem to become. In other words, it's not that we get used to bitterness. Bitter flavors actually change the way we experience taste. You taste a bitter IPA, and the taste will grow in you. And if you're older, with more exposure to bitter foods over the years, the enjoyment of a bitter IPA will come quicker. While appealing to young hip drinkers is more trendy and fun, older drinkers will actually take to your bitter IPA, a whole lot faster. Ray Daniel says that because IBUs are the only measurement we have related to hops, brewers have bragged about them and consumers have seized on them as an indicator of overall hoppiness. But, this is a falsehood. So when the consumer says that they want a hoppy beer, some additional probing is needed. I would ask them what their favorite beer is. Or I would pick a well-known example and ask, is that what they mean? Or I'd give them a sample of something with a high bitterness, American IPA, let's say, and something with a lot of hot flavor and aroma without a ton of bitterness, Eh, such as a New England or Hazy IPA, and see which is more to their liking. You got into brewing because you like beer. You like brewing, you like seeing people's expressions as they drink what you've made but you also want to stay in business. You want to pay your bills, and it would sure be nice to buy Baby a new pair of shoes. The more you understand why your customers like bitterness and what they're looking for in a beer, the greater is your chances of being around for a long, long time. With today's podcast, I'd like to thank Ray Daniels at Cicerone, James Mallett of QCL Scientific, Cormac Wall of Honest Brew, Yvonne de Beats of Brasero, our sponsors, sound engineer Ross McPherson, review publisher John Young, and most of you, are brewing compadres, for listening in. For all of Ray Daniels' interviews, see the January 2020 issue of the Brewer's Journal. This has been Vela Mitrovich, and you've been enjoying the Brewer's Journal podcast.